0: Hello, and welcome to Think Like a Game Designer. I'm your host, Justin Gary. In this podcast, I'll be having conversations with brilliant game designers from across the industry with a goal of finding universal principles that anyone can apply in their creative life. You can find episodes and more at thinklikeagamedesigner.com.
1: I am very excited to announce that we are once again opening the doors to the Think Like a Game Designer Masterclass. What is the Think Like a Game Designer Masterclass? Well, it has been over a year since I have opened up the doors. It is the most direct, effective, and focused way that I know of to take you as someone who has dreamed of making a game or who has designed some games but has not achieved the level of success that you want into someone who is designing, creating, pitching, and publishing games. It is a 12-week course where you will work directly with me and my team to get your game made. The course includes monthly masterminds with me where I will help you solve your direct problems, answer your questions about your designs, Weekly meetups, weekly testing, an incredible community of people, including alumni from previous courses. And several of those alumni are people that I have hired directly. Three people that were in the class now work for me. And they are all focused on helping you to learn, to grow, and to get your game made. And in addition, the course ends with a live pitch session where you will be pitching to top tier. Board Game Publishers, where you will pitch your project and don't worry, we will help you get there all along the way, teach you how to pitch, teach you how to make the materials, teach you how to get ready so that you can really get the practice and get feedback from people in the industry and myself to make sure that your game is ready and that maybe you'll get picked up and published. So it's an incredible journey. Uh, we are starting on April 6th, so if you want to sign up for it, you can go to thinklikeagamedesigner.com, and there's a link there to the masterclass. And as a special bonus for my podcast listeners, because this audience has been growing enormously, I'm going to give you a discount code for 20% off, and then you need podcast20, that's podcast, and the numbers to zero, to get 20% off the admission. Now we are keeping this class very small because it takes a lot of time and attention and we want to make sure everybody gets a focus on it. So there's not that many slots available. So if this is something that's interesting to you and you're hearing this right around the time that it's possible, uh, this is April 6, 2023 is when the course launches, uh, then I encourage you to sign up right away. We're also doing something a little bit different this year because listen, the course is not cheap in terms of Cost of money, but especially in cost of time. I don't want anybody to sign up for this course if you don't have at least five hours a week to commit to really focusing on your game because you're not going to get the most out of it. We have over 40 plus video lessons. We're expecting you to iterate, play test your games, make Uh, use the core design loop, continue to improve. So if you're not willing to put in that time, then probably this is not the right course for you. But if you are, I know of no better way for you to get a return on your investment. Now, if that 20% off coupon code is not enough for you, if you have serious financial hardships, we are doing something we've never done before. We are holding a couple of slots for scholarship, programs so if you're the kind of person that really wants to do this but you cannot afford it uh, and you really are willing to commit the time and interested you can go to think like forward slash scholarship, and we will be picking a few winners and reserving a few slots for those so that that money is not a barrier for you to be able to enter this course. Um, It's incredible. I've met such incredible people through this course. The community is one of the best I've ever seen. So if something that you are ready, you've been listening to this podcast, you love the idea of being a game designer, and you want to make that leap, please go check out thinklikeagamedesigner.com, and I hope to see you in the course. In today's episode, I speak with Jamie Stegmeier. Jamie is the CEO of Stonemeyer
0: Games and the creator of such games as Scythe, Viticulture, and Tapestry. Jamie is one of the most prolific writers and content creators when it comes to the topics of game design and running a company. And so it was great to actually get to talk with him and break apart some of these principles and deep dive. And as you'll see in the episode, he actually does quite a good job of interviewing me and pulling some principles out from me and some of my games. It was the first time I ever got a chance to talk to Jamie directly, and it was actually one of the harder podcasts for me to prepare for because there was so much good content he'd already put out there, and I talk about this some in the podcast itself, that I really wanted to make sure we dove into some new ground and deep-dived into a lot of interesting things. So we certainly accomplished that. We covered about how you use data to help make your games and your process better. Uh, He does a survey of his backers and his customers, and we talk into some of the value of that. We talk about the value of this. Nostalgia in game design. We talk about the process for being able to generate content and how you balance game design, content generation, running a company, and all of the other needs that constantly pull at your attention, including emails and communications with fans. Uh, We talk a lot about campaign design and go into the thought that went behind the design behind my own campaigns for Shards of Infinity and Ascension Tactics, as well as Ascension Tactics Inferno, as well as some of his games. We also talk a lot about crowdfunding and the process by which he wrote a book on crowdfunding and successfully crowdfunded games and why he's moved away from Kickstarter and crowdfunding. He has a ton of additional insights when it comes to things like how he approaches businesses. We talk about community building. We talk about ambassador programs. Really, we cover the full gamut and... I could have easily talked for another hour and a half, but we ran out of time. Uh, So we covered a lot of great stuff. We also give links and content to get to all of Jamie's other materials. So there's plenty more. Uh, If you enjoy this as much as I do, I encourage you to go follow up and find many of Jamie's writings, videos, etc. throughout the interwebs. But for now, I hope you really enjoy my conversation with Jamie Stegmaier. (music) Hello and welcome. I am here with Jamie Stegmeier. Jamie, it is great to have you here.
2: It is, it is truly a pleasure. I've listened to your podcast for a long time and uh, hope someday that I might be a guest and now I'm actually a guest. So yeah, this is really, really exciting for me
0: yeah you know and 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 to just share back i mean you were really one of the first type of people i was thinking of having on the podcast i'm a little surprised it's taken me this long just because we we had never interacted before um because you do such a great job of sharing information about the gaming industry about what it's like to run a company design games go market kickstarter like the whole gamut which has been really kind of my mission with this podcast so yeah. in many ways uh, it's going to be a challenge for me to surface new insights from you that you haven't already shared with the community. So um, I, I'm I'm eager for the opportunity, and, and and hopefully we can dive deep on some fun topics.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm excited, and you've covered so many people that maybe don't have some of the platforms that I have. So I think it's wonderful that you've talked to people who don't have a podcast or don't have a you know a YouTube channel. And uh, but I'm I'm excited to be here too.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I usually save this for the end. um, And I I tell people, give people the opportunity, like, where can they find you and things. But I actually kind of want to do this one at the beginning, because you're, you're, you're so prolific with your content um, on multiple different channels. Um, So maybe just give a brief overview for people that who are inevitably will love this conversation Mm -hmm. and think they need more of you and more insight. uh, where, Where are the best places for them to go?
2: Well, everything's at stonemaiergames.com. That's the company that I run Um, for people who are looking for kind of the crowdfunding or entrepreneurial perspective, running a business, running a game company, that sort of thing. That's there on Stonemeyer Games. It's on the blog there. And around six years ago, I also started a YouTube channel where because I love playing games, I love talking about game design, and I didn't really have an outlet for that. And I didn't want to review games. I just wanted to talk about design, kind of like what you do here. Um, And so on my YouTube channel uh, for Stonemaier Games, I talk about games published by other people and I do some top 10 lists and things like that. So people are interested from the design perspective and they've listened to everything that you've recorded. They can go check out my YouTube channel and hear about games there, too.
0: Yeah, and the uh, I think the proximate cause for me finally reaching out to you was I saw you did a, a favorite mechanic uh, review of Soulforge Fusion, uh, right. and somebody linked it to me, and I'm like, why have we not talked already? <laughs> we have so much in common. We really should be doing this. So I messaged you on uh, on YouTube, and we were able to follow up through there. So uh, yeah. it's 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 great. I mean, this is a, so okay. So I I let's let's go back. Let's go back to the origin story. Let's go back yeah. to to the beginning. You've you've again you've you've chronicled a lot of this stuff. But for people that don't know you or don't know you know kind of where you come from you know maybe give a little bit of of a story of how you got into game design how you got into this process of of starting your own company you know it's it's a it's this is the dream situation for a lot of people even though they don't really understand what they're getting into a lot of the time (laughs) uh so so maybe walk 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 us through a little bit uh where you where you got started
2: Yeah, yeah. And a a quick version of it is that as a kid, I loved games and game design. So when I was very young, I was already kind of experimenting with game design a little bit, dabbling just a little bit. I don't think I fully understood what it was, but I would, you know, create a prototype and write the rules and and play like the game once. And I thought I had designed a game. Felt good as a kid. Hmm. Then as an adult, I... Um, I was enamored by the idea of, um, of publishing a game, and I started to see games pop up on Kickstarter. And I was equally enamored by Kickstarter, and so I designed a game specifically to put on Kickstarter. So I was interested in both the design side of it and the publishing side of it. And that was Viticulture, my first game back in that funded in 2012. I used Kickstarter for a few years, and then I moved on from Kickstarter and grew the company in different ways. And um, Now we have uh, 15 games here at Stonemaier Games, some of which are mine and some of which are games that I've helped other designers develop that we've published, including probably the most notably Wingspan is the game from Elizabeth Hargrave, who you've had the pleasure of speaking with on your channel. Yes, Um, he's amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's the short version. Yeah. Yeah
0: great okay now i'm gonna pick apart and uh and dive in more because so you again it's it's you're you're the one of the more interesting uh guests to have on here because you've written in such detail about so much of this stuff you even have a book that you wrote a crowdfunder strategy guide uh, back in 2015 and you continually update that information on your website but when you're you go from i like to make games and i made some games as a kid to i want to try out this kickstarter thing um uh now 10 over 10 years ago what what was that process like? How did you know even how to go about doing that? How did you know that you, how did you build an audience that first time around? So for people out there that are just, you know, they, they're, they they're in that same boat of like, Hey, I kind of like making games. Maybe I can make this happen. What, what happened for you then? And if you want to intersperse bits about how that's changed throughout the way, then that that's cool too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you said that last part because it definitely has
2: changed quite a bit. Back then there were a handful of game projects on Kickstarter. Now there are a handful launched every day on Kickstarter. Um, and so, one of the things I did was I, I started following and backing a lot of different campaigns. Not always for the full game. Sometimes I'd just back for a dollar and follow along, and I would uh, just kind of observe. I was I was just watching a lot of campaigns and watching how creators interacted with um, the people that were that were supporting these these game related campaigns. And some were not game related too. I was I was backing a number of campaigns just to explore them and learn about them. And so that was really my research for it about how to run a campaign and kind of how to run a business too. I went to I have a degree in international business, but very little of that actually applied to um, the practical elements of, of actually running a business or running a Kickstarter campaign. And then the game design side of it, I, I had continued to play and design games for most of my life, um, and so I had a lot to learn. Definitely, like one of the things I didn't do for Viticulture, I did not blind playtest it. I didn't know that that was a thing that I needed to do. And for those listening who don't know what that is, that's when you—it's uh, it, unguided playtesting. It's when you've created the prototype a prototype and you've created the rules for a game and you send it out to people who are uh, who don't have the benefit of having you there to teach it and play along with you. And so I didn't do that for viticulture and kind of learn the hard way that uh, there's so much you can learn from that part of the process. Those are a few quick things. Yeah,
0: yeah, I, no, yeah. It's, it's yeah, that's super super useful. and 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 yeah, that that ability to sort of so, you know, what I heard there was, you know, learning, you know, learning from other campaigns and what they were doing well and following mm-hmm. those things along um you know obviously iterating and testing and building a good game learning the lesson of doing blind tests um actually it, it takes us a little bit on a tangent but whatever it's my podcast i can do what i want um the uh you know the how you write good rules and how you get people to learn the game mm-hmm. uh remotely you know without you there is is always one of the hardest challenges right it's just yeah. so difficult to do and i've lately been you know leaning more towards um doing as much as possible to drive people to other means of learning, right? Either, you know, having ideally there's somebody that can demo to them or they learn in an event, but that's obviously not super scalable. So videos and kind of how to play walkthroughs. How do you think about that nowadays compared to, you know, the sort of more traditional, just here's a rule book, good luck. I I think about it all the time. Uh, Yeah, it is. I am constantly thinking about how to
2: better onboard people into our games. Um, As someone who has... Right now, I have like 20 games on my shelf of opportunity, and the ones that are probably going to sit there the longest are the ones with the biggest, most complicated rule books, even though those might end up being the games that I enjoy the most. And so I am constantly looking for games that have great tutorials or, as you say, have used other forms of media to help me learn the game or help uh, uh, me understand at least some of the core concepts of the game. Um, I just opened a game called Box One the other day, kind of an escape room box, and it didn't have any rules. It just kind of walked me through the, the the initial ideas of the game until I understood how to play. That's it's a simpler game, it doesn't doesn't always work that way. But yeah, have you I'm trying to so your Soulforge Fusion doesn't am I correct in saying that it doesn't have a rule book? I was taught it, but it has like a, an online
0: that's fusion, correct. Yeah, rulebook? that's correct. Like that. We opted out of a rule book in the <laughs> box because it's a you know, it's a complicated game to explain all the rules correctly, but yeah. not that hard to teach you know in you know i can do it in a you know 5 to 10 minute video or direct you know interaction of 15 minutes but to read through a rule book and have the contents of a rule book it's largely it's incredibly dense to to try to be precise with that and we felt that it was going to be better to just have people go you know the game itself has a scan component to it right every deck mm-hmm. can be scanned into an online collection and played online and so we felt that our customers would by default be more comfortable with that, with that kind of game in particular. And so we went to a, listen, if you want to learn how to play, scan this QR code, takes you to a nice, you know, landing page with videos and extra materials that you can link to. If you do want to read the rules, of course, we do have a PDF and all the things you could download. But we felt that like, destroying a bunch of trees to include pages that no one would read didn't seem like the right call for us and and we got some heat for it i don't want to pretend like this was just the right answer some people were like no rule book i'm not interested i don't want to play your game you know uh (laughs) and so i think culturally that's going to shift over time um i know we i had elon lee on this podcast as well and um he talks about you know it is very much trying to drive people to you know, video and streaming and, you know, getting people to play with friends, not not trying to learn from a rulebook, even though they spend a lot of time on their rulebooks, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't mean you get out of it all, you know, and, and I think for most of my games that don't intrinsically have a, an online component, I'll still keep having rulebooks, but it's just such a hard way to learn. Um, so we're continuing to experiment with it. Um, we might, I think in our next edition, we're looking to do at the very least a quick start guide, like a couple yeah. pages, you know, short little pamphlet of here's how you, here's the gist of the game to learn more. Go to this site, I think might be the next approach for us.
2: For your, for the current version of the book, that kind of the living online one, how often do you find yourself editing it? Does, is that because it's a living? Does it do, are you more compelled to like make little changes more often?
0: Well that was part of the equation that went into it especially again for for something that's like sulfur Fusion which most people from the podcast should be familiar with but it's it's a hybrid deck game so it kind of has similar concepts to a trading card game except that you know you're you just shuffle build two decks together and there's mm-hmm. an algorithmically generated set of cards so there's Ten thousand plus possible cards and infinite, you know, unique decks. So it's always new rules and new things that get added as new cards show up in new sets. But also, we had a lot of little subtle tweaks about timing. In fact, we're we could deep dive into this whole subject too. But like now, we're working on uh, building the digital custom digital app so you know at launch we just use tabletop simulator and as mm-hmm. we're recording this that's still the same tool to play online um, we have a custom script for it but but in by the end of this year we're gonna have a fully automated you know app that'll be available and people can play that enforces the rules and can do tutorials and things like that um, and so that has forced us to revise our rules too because you have to be much more precise when you need a computer to do everything correctly right. uh, so so we knew we were gonna have to make a lot of revisions once we had it out in the audience and players giving us feedback and catching things we didn't catch and, and things that we needed to update for the for the digital app so so there was a lot of changes that happened um over the course of the first few months of release um it, up till now and we're actually as we're recording this we're pretty close to launching our second set um in the north america uh and then i think it'll stabilize over time but certainly we felt more comfortable now because we wouldn't have a printed rule book that would instantly be out of date as soon as we launched
2: I'm glad you mentioned the the kind of learn as you play digital version as well, because that is exactly how I learned Shards of Infinity. I think I can't remember if I bought it or if it was free. I think there might be a, a free, like basic version of the game. But I I'd heard good things about the game. I tried the digital version, loved it and went out and bought the uh, the the analog version the tabletop version right away which i don't always do when i try a game digitally but for that it seemed like the great the best fit and i liked. actually i'm curious what you think about this too if i may throw this back at you as well for digital games we have a few like on board game arena we have a, a wingspan has a great digital game um charterstone does uh and side does i'm i like to think of them often as as learning tools and for that reason, I don't often put, or I'm not often compelled to put expansions on board game arena in particular. But I noticed with some of your digital products, you do have a bunch of expansions. What is your thinking there for expansion content versus just having the base game available available digitally?
0: Yeah. So, so my philosophy in general is I want as many people to be able to play my game in as many forms as possible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, in yeah. so far as it is economically viable for me to do so, I'll put it. You know, up everywhere and and try to make it very expanded. Okay. Um, I was very worried at first, especially with Ascension, uh, the Ascension app when it because we've you know the Ascension app released in 2011, right? And this is yeah. like the early early days of this. There weren't many board game apps, there, there weren't any deck building game apps at the time, and we was very concerned that I think we were selling it for five dollars. Now it's free, but um, that somebody would just buy the game for five dollars and then never spend forty dollars on a box game because why in god's name would you do that um and you know the reality was the exact opposite that we saw our sales spike enormously and i'm i'm pretty convinced that the essential would not still be around today or what it is today without the app as a kind of funnel to draw people in so it lets people play the game in that format and then people who want to have the experience of being around a table and shuffling up and sitting with friends like there's a place for each so i try to make them as accessible as possible sometimes that's not you know either economically viable or it's not practical i mean that's the hardest part? Do you do you have a digital team on your on, like on staff, or you you license out, or how, it's do, how all do you licensed handle out?
2: That? Yeah, it's all licensed okay. out.
0: Yeah. So we've done a variety of different things. We've we've built a digital team in house that works on projects. We've done licensing partners. So the shards of Infinity app we did with Temple Gate Games, the Ascension mm-hmm. app we did with Play Deck, and Soul Forge we're building in house. You know, the, I've I've been through the whole gamut, and you know, you want to talk about how hard it is to build physical games, man, there's a whole (laughs) other set of problems and challenges that come with trying to build digital games they are very expensive iteration costs are higher. There's a lot of interesting challenges that come with it. So um, once you've built the structure for it, ideally, if you built it right, adding expansions is cheaper and easier. And so you want to do that to keep people engaged and keep people excited.
2: That's a good point. Once you've once you've had someone invest that much time and you've invested that much money in the foundation of the game, adding the expansions is significantly easier. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a fascinating thing. And I mean, the world is, you know, it's continuing to evolve, right? The difference between having a game on something like board game arena or tabletopia versus, or tabletop simulator versus a customized app. Do you want to invest in all of the different platforms? You know, some things that are playable on mobile. Do you want to be a game that, can be played, you know, the airplane games, uh, as mm-hmm. I like to call them, where the, you know, the logic lives locally, or you want to build it server-based where it's easier to update and secure. There's all kinds of questions that come with it that I've, I, you know, I, I, at least I've put myself in this position of I have to deal with, you know, the good and bad of both platforms, right? The building yeah. physical games and all the logistics and things that come with it, and then the digital games and all the challenges that come with that. So it's fascinating, uh, but it definitely, we didn't didn't pick the easy route. <laughs> I do love
2: the data that can emerge from it too. Like for uh, for tapestry, when we released that, I put in the rule book, I said, you know, if you want to report your winning civilization and your winning score, um, here's a here's a Google form where you can show us that information. Because I, I wanted to have that data in the long run in case there were some balancing issues that we missed originally. Um, and we did it turned out there were some civs that were a little more overpowered a little some were more underpowered and we wouldn't have known that if we didn't have a way of collecting that data but with digital games you don't have to ask for that data it just, as long as you have their permission to, to accumulate that data you can you just get it and you can use it in the long term have you made any, any changes based on digital game data that you've gathered
0: yeah so it's it's interesting i think that the the for the most part we make the games physically first and then we launch them digitally. That's been true with, you know, almost everything we've done. And in those cases there's a, I feel a pretty significant resistance to making a change based on, you know, digital input. Like we have, um, you know, we have done it with we did actually we did do it with Ascension over time. The the correlation of turn one purchase of Arbiter of the Precipice, which is like a draw a banish card, uh, to your victory was higher than we would have liked. We mm-hmm. kinda knew that anyway, but we could just sort of reinforce our, our understanding of it. And so in the tenth anniversary edition, it's it's probably the only card we changed in a way that made it worse. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's a five cost instead of a four coster. Um, okay. you know, we increased its honor value for which made it better to buy later so it wasn't a strict downgrade but it was a it was a change that we made um when it comes to purely digital games like the original version of Soulforge, we did as a pure digital tcg then yeah we change stuff all the time um because of that we want to see you know it players love to complain about a given broken strategy uh uh and as it turns out they don't uh they don't they're not usually right. Uh, so, so like uh, actually, so we have this data now for Soul Fusion. It's a great example. Uh, people love to hate Krogius. Uh, mm-hmm. Krogius is our uh, starts off as a little one-one, oh, yeah. then goes the into a cocoon, and then becomes yeah. a 30, 30, can't be stopped, you know, your opponent can't target it uh, yeah. with spells or anything. And so it's very uh, players complain about it a lot. But we can correlate based on our tournament data, because everybody has to log in which deck they Um, they play and we can see who wins and who loses. Kyrgyz is not associated with winning. It's not correlated with winning at all. Mm -hmm. Like at all.
1: (laughs) Like it's not even close.
0: (laughs) So, so there's a, and and so those are great for me because I, I, I was pretty sure I was right. And this was a, this was not a problem, but uh, you know, the data helps to back it up. So I think Mm -hmm. mostly when I think about digital data, at least the way I've been successfully able to use it, it's more of a, of a gut check against your instincts that you have already. Not so much that it's like surfacing things you wouldn't know otherwise. Um, uh, we do have a, we do have some stuff we do behind the scenes like with Soulforge fusion again i talk about there's 10,000 different possible cards mm-hmm. uh in set 1 alone and that's exponentially increasing with new sets um we have you know ways to surface like okay there are certain types of permutations like if there's a level 1 card that has you know eight or more power eight or more attack surface it here for us you know so we can like automatically see some things that might be problematic cuz you just can't test a game the same way when there's that many permutations so we have to use tools to get us there but uh, right. I, I i the data side of things is fascinating to me because there's 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 always a trap and i don't know how this works for you like, in the data that you get uh a lot of times, it's very easy to interpret it in a lot of different ways, right? Yeah. When you're, you know, in the in the tabletop side, I'd love to. If you have any stories or examples around this, of you know, when you've gotten feedback that's worked well or poorly for whether it be a Kickstarter or product sales or something that's been going on where you're able to use that information well, or where you're able to where in fact there's too much noise and you end up drawing the wrong conclusion or being unable to draw a conclusion. Yeah, this is
2: something I definitely have learned thanks to Tapestry mostly, and that I've applied to every game that we've made since Tapestry. Um, with Tap Street, it it came out, it released, and people started playing it a lot, which was awesome to see people playing it a lot and discovering some of these civs that were a little bit more, um, more powerful or a little bit less powerful than others, uh, especially in the hands of people who, as they became more and more experienced with the game, and the complaint at the time was, oh, I bet some of our games just didn't play test this enough. And I was like, I, I know we playtested a, a, a ton, like not even just internally blind playtesting. We went over the top in playtesting this game. But what I realized the problem is, and I think this is what you're touching upon here, is that um, we weren't analyzing the data as well as we could. And for the most part, that means that I, I wasn't analyzing the data. I was the one looking at this data and I wasn't diving deep into it uh, because... Uh, I probably should be better at it, but it isn't my area of expertise. And so we had someone surface, a guy named Jeremy, whose job is to analyze data and co- in a completely different field. And Jeremy volunteered to start looking at our playtest data and our tapestry data and, play- and data from all sorts of games, any data that we get our hands on. And he just does an amazing job of diving way deeper than what I can see on my Google Doc of data when I get back up. A blind playtest report where he is really looking at specific player counts and how they and outliers and all, all the stuff that that's under the surface that i don't get to see and um it's made a big difference in in playtesting games as we look at that data from various games that are playtesting and it's made a big di- difference in tapestry and some of the changes that we're going to make with a revised pack for tapestry so that that data yeah. analyst i i think that's where the uh the analyzing the data, it, it can be just as important as the amount of data that you have.
0: Well, and yeah, the amount of data you have can actually work against you sometimes, mm-hmm. right? Like if you, you have too much data, it can yeah. cloud what what's actually going on. Like totally. this is, there's this idea in, in business around around KPIs, right? These key yeah. performance indicators that you mm-hmm. pick some key metrics, some key numbers you're driving towards and you say, look, these are the things we're going to optimize for. If you have too many of those, then you could delude yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, this one went down, but this one went up. Or this is this is because of this thing, right? And really narrowing down, like, all right, what do we really care about here? Yeah. Um, and so that can in terms of, you know, in terms of your engagement with your game, it could be, you know, how many people are joining your email list or your discord with your company. It could be, you know, whatever your, you know, whatever your metrics are, obviously sales is a good one to track, but, Mm -hmm. and when it comes to your game, you know, you can be, you want to highlight some specific things, right? So we'll track, you know, whatever you're trying to solve for at that time, right? Okay, well, let's make sure we know which player, what the player order is and who wins in player order. Is there some aberration where going first or going last or something is a, is an abnormal advantage or, Starting with this given sieve or this given Forgeborn or this given character, does it have an aberrational win win loss records? And so, being able to find those things can help you point to point to problems. Um, but but there's no substitute for the the design instinct at the end of the day to find out you know right. what the right solutions are, which things need to be acted on.
2: Yeah, that's that's the the gut side of things where the that's the side that I enjoy uh, the
0: most, I think more than the data side of. Sure. Uh, well, I think, yeah. I think, I think the data side is, is yeah, the da- data, uh, yeah. And it's my position that data, data can inform your gut and, and, and mm-hmm. help you to ask, ask the, you know, kind of focus on the right problems to solve, but I don't think it yeah. solves the problems for you. I, I've never yeah. experienced that anyway, even with access to quite a bit of data. Yeah. Um, spe- speaking of data, actually. So you do, you do an annual survey, right. of your of your backers or your customers and, and get, collect data that way can can you talk yeah. a little bit about that and you know kind of how that started and how you use it
2: yeah i was actually just thinking about that as you were talking about how uh data can be a little skewed sometimes based on who you're asking but yeah we have an annual demographic survey that i send out to our e-newsletter subscribers um just to see just to learn how to better serve them really like how, how they're interacting with games how many campaign games they played in the last year to see if uh if we should make more or less campaign games um uh, where they're playing games, who they're playing games with. I just try to learn as much as possible about, about our customers. And it definitely ends up being biased towards the people that follow us and the people who choose to respond to this survey, which usually ends up being around 4,000 people. Um, but at the same time, those are the people who, I'm, who are, those are the most active people. So I want to make sure I'm serving them. And hopefully, the way that I serve them can reflect on other people who, who join in the fun later.
0: Um, yeah, this is this is this is a great yeah, not not to interrupt, but this is a great point to highlight here, right? The 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 loud minority or the most invested minority, the ones you're going to hear from the most often, and yes, it's absolutely important to serve them. But a lot of times, they what they want is not going to be the same as what you know the mass of players want or new players are going to need uh, to support your game. So, yeah, I don't know how you how you are able to parse that or how you think about or you know maybe some surprising. Uh, insights you've had based on these surveys, either where you've learned something and acted on it or where you've learned something and said, uh, you know what, this may not be the best thing for the customers who aren't speaking right now.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I, for the most part, I try to keep that in mind. Like when I, I make an, an annual blog post about it, and I try to make it very clear that I am not saying that this is what all gamers are saying or what all people are saying. Um, it, it's just what a small sector of our audience is saying. And even then, like... We have a good number of e-newsletter subscribers. I'm I'm very grateful. I think it's around 45,000 people at this point, but we've sold 1.7 million copies of Wingspan. So there are so many, many more people out there who have Wingspan on their shelf that have chosen not to engage with us in that way. And um, I don't know what those people are thinking. I want to know. I I would love to know what they're thinking and how they're interacting with our games, but I don't. I don't. uh, I don't have that type of access to them. So. It's just, yeah, it's just a small piece of the puzzle when when, when I'm getting this data. I'm trying to think of a specific example because there was one question that I asked a while ago, and I can't remember the topic, where when I po- posed it to our audience, the answer was very different than when I posted it, even on the blog, uh, for people who were following my blog. And unfortunately, I can't remember it off the top of my head. I think it may have been about campaign games because um, mm. I think a lot about campaign games. But uh, we'll talk about that in a second, I think, because I, I do have a question for you about Shards Infinity. But yeah, um, did anything come to mind as I was rambling there?
0: Yeah, no, I think I mean I, I think that's that's the, the the thing that came to mind for me. And I, yeah, I'm eager to, and excited to talk about the varying challenges and upsides and ways we do campaign games. But um, the uh, you know I know so my you know my original background is kind of in in, in, the, in magic, and, I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. and I I the the shift that has happened over the years where the game used to be very you know. The, the community the feedback everything was very focused on the competitive scene yeah. right and the pro players and people which was great for me because they were catering to me but <laughs> then they didn't, you know they realized that through through uh, uh, organic fan uprising in a lot of ways you know formats like commander were the most popular by far and the it took them a long time to adjust and realize they shouldn't be fighting against this community trend they should be catering to it mm-hmm. um, and something like 80 or 90% of all the magic players never even go to any event let alone you know care about a competitive circuit uh and so that changed the way that they market changed the types of products that they made it changed you know who they wanted to serve even though many people complain very loudly i mean i feel like there's an annual Magic's dying they've killed it uh discussion that starts up on the internet so um it's a it's a really it's very hard you know just to to get into the emotional part of this right as a designer, as a, as a founder, as someone who wants to, you know, you want to serve your community when you hear people complaining and, you know, just, you know, (laughs) lots of vitriol comes from people that care a lot about Mm -hmm. your games when you make changes that are designed to serve the wider audience, but not necessarily those, those most invested players. And so it's takes a, it takes some fortitude to be able to make those decisions and not a lot of times trying to give the people, the most loud people, everything they want will, 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 will bankrupt you.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It absolutely will. Uh, One one thing there, do you you still play Magic from time to time Do you dabble in it?
0: It's very rare now. You know, so I'll play Magic Arena occasionally just to kind of see what the new set mechanics are and kind of I'll read about it. But it's it's one of the downsides of my life making games. And so I have a lot less time to play games that I'm not either designing or researching directly.
2: Well, if I I may ask this, because I think it applies to you a little bit. You've you've been around for a while. You've made games for a long time, including with games that you're still actively kind of. Uh, expanding. Uh, but one thing that's fascinating, fascinated me about magic for the last couple of years in particular, because um, whenever a new set comes out, I often buy a draft set and I just draft it with my friends. That's how I play magic. And I'm fascinated with many of the sets that have come out over the last few years about how well they've um, tugged on nostalgic heartstrings for people who have, maybe I, you know, I, I did play magic when I was a teenager and then I returned to it as an adult and they have like in the latest set, they have, Old board old uh, artifact borders on some of the cards that they brought back some of the old artifacts and I don't know if it's something that only magic can do because it's been along for been around for so long and that they have changed things like the card frames over the year, over the years but have you played around with that idea of nostalgia at all in, in your games?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, it's 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 a powerful tool, right? Yeah. I mean, so so Ascension has been around for almost thirteen years now. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so even in the Kickstarter for Ascension Tactics Inferno, uh, we had a our day one backer reward was a original Eric Sabi art uh rat that was in in uh you know sort of an alternate art version of one of the cards in the set with the old frame around it. Yeah. And so it's exactly we did exactly the same thing. And and uh-huh. it's great as a day one reward because it's like only you know, if you know, you know, right? If you're yeah. if you're not yeah if you're not into that then fine you know you're not gonna it's not a big deal you that you missed it but for the people who are our most loyal followers who are the ones who are most likely to back on day one it was a great thing to be able to throw out there and be like hey look this was our original style like we've mm-hmm. revamped everything over the years to you know keep the spirit but change you know having to work with more artists and shift things uh, but the original art style the original work i think is something that that people love and i mean nostalgia is a, is a very powerful force yeah um you know, i don't i don't think Do you, you don't do licensed games do you i, I don't i don't think I in your catalog the only one that's kind of in that area
2: is uh is red rising which is based on a novel series
0: oh oh yeah that's a great series that's right re- yeah that's really cool so okay so you got one at least one. um but I, I think that the um when i think about which we don't have any licensed games i, I worked on licensed games in, in a previous company in marvel and dc and world of warcraft and i love all that stuff but you know i think if i were going to pick up a license it would be trying to take something that's like a cool old nostalgia value mm-hmm and you know maybe not as popular nowadays and bring it in because you just get that in immediate warm fuzzy feeling and yeah. a whole class of people who would come over so so yeah it's a, it's a powerful tool if you're going to use it within a game i think you know obviously you need some history to be able to evoke it but you can also borrow it uh, whether it be from other IP or honestly I think um the success of flesh and blood mm-hmm. is very much a nostalgia play yeah right I mean their marketing and their whole positioning was all like remember what magic used to be like well that's <laughs> what we are right i mean I mean it was explicit uh, yeah. and so so I think there's there's it's it's absolutely one of the tools in the toolbox for how you want to pull pull audiences in um and especially now that you know all of us that grew up you know, playing these games in the 90s and and, mm-hmm. and are now, you know, have a lot more disposable income and are a great audience to target, especially for launching something new. If you can get a, a preset group of people that come in for nostalgia value, it's it can be a high value, high value conversion. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, I, I'm, I'm happy to, uh, if you want to, you know, I know you mentioned you wanted to jump in and talk about some campaign stuff. Um, I have, I have some other topics I want to cover as well, but I'm, uh, I'm happy to bounce this back and forth. You had, you said you had something you want to talk about with, um, yeah. shards campaign or otherwise.
2: Yeah. It, campaigns are, so I only have a few campaign games. I have the rise of Fenris, which is the last expansion for Scythe. And then I have uh charterstone charterstone is a 12 game campaign. And I, I think about campaign games all the time cause they get, they get a lot of attention on crowdfunding. Um, and some of the top ranked games are, are, are campaign games. They tell amazing stories, but, um, I find myself as a gamer playing fewer, I'm drawn to fewer campaign games because I often feel like I have one in the works. Like right now I'm playing Betrayal Legacy and I don't really want another one until I'm done with that. And I don't want that one to overstay its welcome. And I just wanted to partially thank you because I think the, uh, the, the, Shards of affinity, the Shadow of Salvation campaign expansion, cooperative slash campaign expansion. I love, and I've lauded this many times. I love that. It's like, is it a three or four game campaign? Three, three. I love that you made it a three day, a three game campaign. Like my, my girlfriend and I played through it in about a weekend. And then we played through it uh, again, taking the, the, the other paths that we could take on another weekend, a few weeks later. And I just love that you, you made something short instead of something epic. And by doing so, you made it much more likely for us to actually finish it and complete that story. So I wanted to thank you for doing that. And I wanted to see if you had any thoughts about campaign length in general and the value of that in a world where some of the biggest name campaign games seem to have made that name, I think, by having, you know, 50 game campaigns that hardly anyone actually finishes.
0: Right. Yeah. So, so, well, thanks for for the kind words. I, you know, Shards was the first, campaign game that we built uh Mm -hmm. i've really designed and so i started from kind of first principles and they were similar to to what you described like i i don't have the time to play a 20 hour or 50 hour campaign thing i don't i don't want to yeah um you know it's just not my it's not my cup of tea and and each and designing campaigns is hard like each Mm -hmm. i think of each campaign game each scenario is its own game. You're designing <laughs> yeah. inside of your other game. Like it's so much work, like so much work. Yeah. Um, and so if you're going to do it both to create it and then and then to go through and play it, you want to make something that's going to have like a high return on your investment and it's going to, people are actually going to enjoy. So mm-hmm. I I wanted something that was replayable so that I wouldn't feel like if I did it once, I can't do it again. Because again, that's a lot of work for something only someone's only going to touch once. Right. And I wanted something that didn't feel like I was committed to this Insane length. So it's both the campaign itself doesn't take that long. And there's, you know, choose your own adventure. And we even have an audio recording of all the scripts and everything. So you can like have fun with it. And then, but also that each campaign segment could be played in a normal game length for shards, you know, under an hour, 30, 30 minutes to an hour, depending on how many players and how fast you are. Mm-hmm. And then you could pause and then take the next one. And then each thing, you know, the whole experience shouldn't take you more than three or four hours, maybe five if you're, you know, take your time with it. Um, so I think that. Uh, and then that informed how we built the campaign for Ascension Tactics. And Ascension yeah. Tactics was a much more involved version. We had like a dozen uh, starting scenarios and then we had about a dozen campaign scenarios. Um, now we still branched it. So we, we took the same lesson of branching campaign. So it's still mm-hmm. only five, five scenarios you play through to okay. get through the whole thing. Um, but it, because of the, you know, more branches. Uh, it was it was about a dozen different scenarios we had to design, and that was probably it's definitely the most gameplay and work I've ever packed into a single box uh, with that. And so I'm very conscious of those sorts of things, and obviously there's a place for that that market of of of. But I, I suspect, and I, I haven't played through them all, but I suspect that you got to be phoning it in sometimes when you're designing <laughs> thirty campaigns, you know, to get there. Like, you know, is there really that much interesting innovation going on there, or are you just making you know small small tweaks on a theme, like? I I know we've right. got the campaign for Ascension Tactics Inferno we designed and we created some new mechanics that allow you to play up to four players, which is you know, obviously changes it a lot. Before it was only one or two, and then I just really went all out with the different campaigns. Like it's not that many; it's still I think it's four campaigns to play through in this one, but they're all very different. They're very mm-hmm. different experiences that you know you feel like you're playing a different game. And so I'd rather invest in like those great experiences than. You know, a lot of small variations on a theme, and again, maybe I'm wrong, and other people are just spending hundreds or thousands of hours on their their campaign design. <laughs> but it seems just it's a very tough. It's very tough for me to make that exchange when I could design entire other games, multiple entire other games in the time it would take me to do something like a you know twenty or thirty campaign game.
2: And one way that I, I thought about it with the Rise of Fenris is I wanted to create, uh, a like a major memorable moment in every scenario, and. Uh, that can be easily diluted. Like, it, 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 without that goal, I definitely could have ended up with a twenty-game campaign where maybe you remembered three moments out of that campaign. I would much rather have an eight-game campaign where you remember almost every individual game because it's, it's whether it's different or there's like a big impactful surprise in every one of those in every one of those games.
0: Um, yeah, that's yeah. that's great. Yeah, I mean, th- this is where the idea of you know, look, what you're you're trying to deliver on a core experience and yeah. a core emotion for your audience, right? The, the how long is the thing? How many scenarios you play through? Like That's not really what matters. What you want is you want to give people those, those powerful emotional impacts that they're looking for. And I feel like people who play a campaign game, they are looking for something different than a regular game, right? They're looking for some sense of progression. They're looking for something where they can feel that their decisions make an impact on future events that are going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a little bit more socialization in the multiplayer version of course I think solo campaign clearly has its own audience yeah. um, I, I'm curious do you, do you have a sense I don't know if you, this is including your surveys do you have a sense of like what percentage of your players you know actually play solo play I've, I've always been curious about this
2: yeah let's see if I have it in my survey from last year um, I don't have it no I don't have it handy in the survey from last year I think for us it's around 10%
0: yeah okay that seems like a reasonable position you know to me it's like the vast majority like i love games i love board games but the vast majority of why i choose to play a board game over say a video game is i want to socialize right i want to be (laughs) connected with other people um the solo board game for me personally i would generally rather just play a video game (laughs) um and so it's a it's a it's it's harder for me to reach that you know i mean i i've you know i build it but um and i built the solo modes and there are several people who are very excited about them and so we did it again with ascension tactics inferno but it's just um it's a lot of work for what is not, you know, I'm not part of that target audience group. So it's yeah. uh it's harder to design for uh, successfully for me. I have to make sure we have other people on my team who are more into it. So I, I lean on them more, uh, but it's a, it's an interesting space. It's grown in popularity over the years.
2: And I, I do the same. I, I focus on the multiplayer side of our games. And then we have uh, the automa factory. Uh, my friend Morton, who, uh, who handles the the solo side. And one thing that he has pointed out to me that was enlightening to me, um, because I did come to it, uh, Wondering about the social side of it, I same same for me. Like, I play games for the social aspect. Um, but Morton has pointed out that there, there is a robust solo community of people who play the game solo, but they play it solo partially because they like to talk about the game their solo experiences with the solo community. So I think there is an interesting interactive element there, where they're talking about the games with this greater community, even though they're playing by themselves. Um, I thought that was interesting to learn
0: when you pointed that out. No, that that makes a lot of sense. Actually, I hadn't I hadn't really thought that through, but I it also explains partially why the solo players are, I think, louder percentage-wise <laughs> than uh, yeah. than others, because this is their that's how they socialize with it. Mm-hmm. That, that becomes a thing. So that's that's fascinating. Um, okay. While we're on the topic of campaigns, there's two other things that I find. Um, interesting and, and sort of challenging around it that come to mind one is um how you balance like the difficulty level of a campaign yeah. what makes you think about what do you target how do you play right because in, in a in a pvp game right you just okay they're you're playing against each other so uh, you know i need as long as the strategies are not to degenerate i've I've done my job you know and you're having fun but in a in a pve game say in a campaign where you're you're just fighting against the game itself um setting a difficulty level uh, is is not an easy task. So, how do you think about that uh, that topic?
2: Yeah, I, I, it's on my mind a lot. Like I'm working on a game that either could end up being a campaign game, or it could end up being a mini campaign game, or it could end up not being a campaign game. And so, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. And that's one of the challenges. Like, if if I decide to make this game a campaign game, then I need to make sure uh, that when you're playing. Or whatever game five gave game 10 whatever game however deep in, into the the campaign it goes that that your character isn't completely imbalanced against what the game is what uh, the challenges that the game is presenting them uh, with uh, and at the same time also the the amount of kind of mental overload I'm asking players to keep in mind because by game by game 10 do they have, Three dozen cards that they didn't have in the first game, or, or you know, all this, all these different things that they've gathered over the course of the game. Or am I going to artificially constrain that and say at the end of each game you need to get rid of all this stuff and you can only keep one? Uh Just I don't have to face those types of de- design decisions when I'm designing one-off games.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. So it's a lot harder. And yeah, then the, then I mean, that begs the question too, right? How do you decide what what yeah. what, what factors do you use to decide if it's if you're going to make a game a campaign game or not?
2: Yeah. I, I, I Well, you mentioned the experience. What kind of experience am I trying to offer someone? Um, the game that I'm talking about is a game where I built a big world and I'm trying to decide if it's more exciting for players to to end up on this world and spend a, a, a single session on it and then blink out of existence and then come back later fresh and new. Or is it more interesting for them to spend a lot of time with the same character uh, walking around this world and exploring this world and going deeper into their character and having that that character-specific progression um i don't know the answer to that for this particular game but that's that's kind of the decision point that i'm making what 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 do i want to offer players for that experience
0: yeah yep well that's 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 the heart of it right every every we're going to talk a lot about different design decisions but they always come down to that at the core right what's the experience i'm trying to create for my audience you know who am i trying to serve what experience do i want to create for them like that's that's always uh it's just a great like thing i always come back to if i'm ever confused or lost in a game or design uh, you're really coming back to that okay what's 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 at the heart of this and then once right. you know that the other decisions i won't say they're easy but they're definitely easier right um, as you know what you're trying to target
2: and i did go through that with charterstone charterstone is a, a competitive legacy village building um game that i made and uh, from fairly early on i knew that i wanted I wanted players to have that sense of pride of building their own part of a village, and that that part of the village would carry over to the next game. That was really important to the game itself. So um, that that yeah. was kind of baked in from the beginning.
0: Well, yeah. So let's 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 tease that apart then a little bit too. So so legacy games, and I'm I'm trying to remember to define it. You know, are games where you know the game is permanently altered yeah. based on previous gameplays compared to a campaign game where your situation is altered based on previous games or previous scenarios, but you can still sort of reset everything back to the beginning. If you want to, right. um, it's sort of the the main fundamental difference as I, as I define it, how do you think about, you know, those two different genres and, and, and how you decide between them or because I, we, we had that same debate with shards. Do so we want to make this a legacy game? In fact, that's where we started um, and then we kind of, the more we thought about it, the more like, eh, I think it'd be more fun to be able to just replay it. So we, we out yeah. it out, but how, how do you think about those terms?
2: I think permanence is powerful. I've, I've learned a lot from watching what, what Rob Davio was created and and the way he, that he he talks about the, the power of permanence. Um, I, I think I view it as a tool, a tool to use in the right circumstance. Like so, sometimes that permanence can be really powerful for players to experience when they tear up that card or when they put a sticker on the board and that, that sticker is there from then on. That is, you know, that is a feeling that is an emotion in itself. Um, but I, as a, from the design perspective, it's, it's a big choice to ask a player to make a permanent decision because it can't be undone. They have set themselves on a path then, and I need to anticipate that path as a designer. That made Charterstone by far the hardest game that I've ever designed. Because I had to anticipate all these different, this web of paths that players could take that they couldn't undo because of the permanence, because of that feature. and so. Uh, I'm glad that I did that. I'm glad I went through that experience with Charterstone, but it also made me never want to design design a legacy game again. And I'm amazed that Rob has just made a whole career out of it. Um, but, yeah, uh, yeah.
0: No, yeah. Well, it's awesome. I mean, he's he's also been on the podcast and you know talked mm-hmm. about the origins of that and and when we you know where it's evolved. And yeah, so if anybody that's interested in, in legacy games that uh, deep dive, please uh, check out that episode. Um, and uh, I think that. Yeah, I've been I've I've played around with this. Probably shouldn't be spoiling this right now, but we don't have it figured out yet. But I've been played around with how do you make like a legacy game, like using some of the algorithmic generation tools, like we mm. built with Soul Forge, yeah. where you could theoretically have a, you know, because there's 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 a variety of possible things that can happen in a legacy game, but once you've sort of you know opened up the box or ripped the sticker out or done the thing, right, the magic's kind of gone. It still like gets to that probably you know you could play it again but there's some some diminishing returns on it yeah. and having ones where literally every box you get could be different and you don't know what's coming and then you know the sort of permanent changes come from that like that's a pretty sexy concept <laughs> to me like there's something that's really yeah. really splashy about that i'm i'm i haven't cracked it yet but um yeah i don't know if you've put any thought into that kind of space but uh i'm 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 really eager to figure it out
2: i've i toyed around with with that. and Charterstone is a little bit of that, given that it's a competitive legacy game. Um, but uh, it 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 can rapidly uh, spin out of control, I think it, it depending on how much how much uh, how much you let players change things um over the course of the game. And I think Rob actually does some interesting things in betrayal legacy where he kind of gives uh, different components a timer. Where something might be really powerful, might get more powerful, and then it goes away if you've used it a lot. And I think it, by by giving something a you know a half life, a timer that, that that can that can help um, with those power yeah. levels.
0: Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Okay, I want to make sure to cover some other things because uh, there's so many deep dive topics we could cover here. But um, I want to talk about uh, a little bit more on the business side too. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I think you one of the things that you seem to do a great job of is you know consistent um, content generation. You know, creating stuff whether it be posts on blog posts or YouTube videos and uh, you know multiple different channels. And um, I know from <laughs> doing mm-hmm. things like this podcast how much time this stuff can take. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, how do you how do you think about you know your kind of time allocation for those things? How much do you credit that as kind of a, a business strategy versus just something you're doing because you're passionate about it? I mean, to some extent, it's all it's all tied together. But right. um, you know, for for people out there, I'm I, I, you know, I'll tip my hand. I think that you know, creating great content for people for free is one of the best ways that you can build an audience nowadays, and just by adding value to the world. Um, so, so w- how do you think about that, and and what what's your strategy like for deciding what's what's worth your time to create and and how you'd balance that with the other interests of your company and design
2: it's i i love the question and i love that spirit of generosity the the idea um and and you're right it is tied to marketing in the end um but I, i love the idea of creating something that adds value to people and hopefully starts a discussion that everyone can benefit from including me When I write a blog post, it's often about an idea that I'm kind of processing. Maybe I've experimented with something and I want to talk about it, but I I genuinely want to see what people think about it. Um, And I I learn from the comments on my videos. I learn from the comments on my blog posts. And so part of it is just like a collective learning experience. Part of it is marketing. uh, And in terms of time management, that's something I had to learn over time about how to be consistent with this content uh, while also knowing that I have a lot of other things to do with running my business and developing games and designing games. And so I kind of have a, a schedule where on, on Mondays and Thursdays, I write blog posts. On Tuesdays, Tuesday is my is my recording day. I typically record um, a couple game videos I and, a, and a, usually a top 10 video on Tuesday. And then I schedule them ahead, um, which is something that I, I didn't do for a while. I, I used to record on the same day that I'd post. And so I have like my Sunday video, I'd record it on Sunday morning. And then it occurred to me; I it should have been obvious at the time, but I can record those in advance. Like no one knows when I recorded them, um, so I record that stuff on Tuesday. And so, yeah, breaking that down and having those those habits where I know this is something I do every Thursday morning and and uh, every Tuesday morning, I need to be I need to be ready to look at the camera for a few hours. Um, hmm. But that I don't have to do it after that. That by that I'm done with it. I can focus on other things after that. Has been really helpful to have that consistency and that structure that uh, that I found worked for me.
0: Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I find I find things like that where you can carve out time and have consistent structure is is really valuable mm-hmm. and I also think putting yourself into public deadlines um yeah. is super valuable, right? If everybody knows, you know, we 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 you know, we we post at least one Podcast a month, which is not too onerous, but it's a you know I make sure I get it done. If I know I'm going to do a blog post every week, and I start posting, and I tell people that the the pressure of people are expecting it um, is also yeah. really helpful. I, one of my phrases I like to repeat is deadlines are magic uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> to really yeah. help make stuff happen. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. And um, for
2: you too, I, I I may have this wrong, but do you do you live in a different country right now, or are you traveling actively all the time?
0: Yeah. I'm a nomad. I'm a You're digital nomad. nomad. So, yeah. so for the last two years I have been, uh, without an actual normal home and I I'll spend a couple months in different countries around the world, uh, and shift. So I'm heading to Europe right now. I, I just got back uh, to the U S cause we had a team in-person retreat, um, okay. in Vegas. And, uh, I have a couple conventions I'm speaking at, and then I'm going to go off to Europe, um, June from the beginning of June until, uh, Gen Con in August. Okay.
2: I think it's really cool that you found that that, that worked for you. Um, And does it get in the way of... Or does it create a new challenge for scheduling time to talk with other people, since they could be on very different time zones than you?
0: Uh, of course, yeah. of course, yeah. No, there's a lot of challenges. So one is you talk about your routines and your habits. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you're home and you have your setup, everything's great and all dialed in. That's much easier to do. You've got your right. okay. I know I've got my mic and camera set up over here. So when I walk in this room, I'm going to record. I know I've got my you know my like nice little coffee maker and my desk where I write stuff. You know everything is like set up. Yeah, and so I've had to learn how to create those triggers and create you know, sort of portable versions of that that get me into my habit routines. Mm-hmm. And then I've also been, because we've already, prior to starting this process, what kind of got me on the road in the first place was I, you know, COVID made us become 100% remote, as with mm-hmm. most people. And then we started hiring people from all over the country and then all over the world because they're just good people and they don't have to commute to an office anymore. So why wouldn't I hire great people? Yeah. And so we already had to figure out how to work with people in different time zones and then um and so a lot of that became as much as possible making meetings asynchronous and when they are synchronous meetings making sure they're documented well Mm -hmm. you know creating those spaces where it turns out a lot of the times people spend in face-to-face meetings is wasted uh and so they still are valuable again we had a team retreat where everybody got in the same room for four days um, just a couple of weeks ago. And that's immensely valuable. Um, but wow. we use that time very consciously. So it's forced me to become a lot more efficient in ways that I'm I'm very happy about. And I will carry forward even, you know, whenever I decide to stop being a nomad. Um, but it's, it's no question, it's harder. Um, and I had to learn, you know, when I started on the journey, I would do like a week here, two weeks there. And I found that to be way too disruptive. Um, mm-hmm. It just takes too long to get yourself situated so my productivity took a hit but now with the couple months at a time uh it's i find it to be a pretty good rhythm
2: with the the new employees paired with the traveling has it changed how you delegate um do you do you delegate more or less or do you find specific things that just weren't working for you as you became that digital nomad
0: you know it's actually the the answer is delegate more, uh-huh. and the and the reasoning for it, and this is maybe a good insight for a lot of people out there because I just I, I think it's a common fallacy for a lot of entrepreneurs, and that you know I just felt like I had to do everything. Yeah. Right? I'm yeah. I know I have all the context. I'm good at what I do, and you're not going to do as well as I can. So I need to make sure that I'm the one doing this, or I need to make sure that I'm closely checking up on you and you know micromanaging you as you do this, which ends up being worse for everybody. Right? Um, and uh, forcing myself to do this, I actually learned this more before I became an official digital nomad I just did a, I took a three-week trip to Thailand back in 2017, mm-hmm. and I told my team six months ahead, "Hey, I'm going to be unreachable." Now, in reality, I was not. I was still checking uh-huh. my email. I still did, but I told everybody I was unreachable, <laughs> and I just occurred, run it as an experiment. Like you have six months to get ready. You have plenty of time. What do you need from me? How do we set this up? And everybody stepped up in a way that i was so impressed by uh and i and then it made me feel so dumb because i realized that i was the reason that they were holding themselves (laughs) i was the one holding them all back Uh um and so removing yourself this idea that you're some superstar uh and you have Mm -hmm. to do everything is so critical if you want to scale a company um you know and so i have a great team they're incredibly talented and and i'm not saying i got this perfect by any stretch i'm continuing to learn uh and try to get better um, because as we grow i don't know if you have the same problem how many people do on your team
2: now we have uh th- I have three other full-time co-workers and uh, two part-time
0: okay great so you're you're still you're still it's an awesomely small team we yeah. we were that size maybe a year and a half ago year uh, and now we're uh, like 12 plus pl- uh, full-time okay. and then another six or so part-time but we' we scaled a lot uh, recently with different divisions and a bunch of different things going on and that just you have to manage differently you have to change everything yeah. um, because you can't you know, with three people, five people, even up to maybe eight people, you can pretty much know what everybody's doing. You can be very closely connected to what everyone's doing all the time. Yeah. Uh, once you get past ten, uh, that becomes actually you know impossible, and you have to start <laughs> thinking about this. Is where like the idea we talked earlier about KPIs and managing some things by metrics, and so you have to ask yourself the questions like, what is it that would need to be true for me not to worry about this at all? Mm-hmm. What would need to be true for me not to worry about this at all? And then you write that down. Ideally, right, and then right. you can share that. And say, hey, here's what I would need, and here's some milestones I'd like, or here's what I would like to see written up from your meeting notes, or here's what you know, whatever it is that you would need, and then give your team the ability to run and uh, and and being conscious for yourself, because uh, I always tend to worry about everything that's going on. Right? I mean, you're, uh-huh. you're running the business, and all it all it all falls on you eventually. You have to take responsibility for everything, uh, even as you realize you don't really have control over as much as you would like. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, I, I love the idea, too, that, uh, of in, almost intentionally going on a vacation uh, to, to realize that maybe you are a little less important than you think you are. I, I have definitely gone through that myself. And it also made me realize how amazing my team is. As it sounds like you realize that, too, that they can yeah. they can handle things really, really well when I'm not available. I, I jury duty a couple of weeks ago, and I was really worried about it. And then in the middle of it, like because in, in the trial, I cannot do anything. I can't check my email or anything like that. And everything was fine. Because my team is awesome and they don't, they don't need me to do that stuff, do everything from, from moment to moment.
0: Yeah, no, that's a, that's exactly right. It's a, it's a great, it's a great insight. Um, you know, if it's a forcing function like that, that requires it, then, Mm -hmm. you know, so be it, uh and and so then what what then do you decide now you know you've got a great team uh you know that they can handle stuff without you how do you then decide what's what are the things that y- you decide you want to do versus you let other people do how do you how do you make those decisions and what specifically are are they nowadays
2: yeah i was thinking about this a little bit of that with the uh the content creation um i i found that i enjoy that more than i thought and so that that is definitely part of my weekly workflow that content creation but i did realize along the way that uh like, I like turning on the camera and talking for a few minutes about a game. I don't like, and I realized, I don't like editing the videos. I don't like <laughs> adding images to the screen. I don't like adding the, you know, I, I I have not learned Adobe Premiere. I could, but I don't really want to spend time doing that. And that takes the joy out of it for me. Um, and there are certain things that I have to do in my job that are not, not everything is full of, full of joy at every single moment. But um, that was one of the things that when I... Um, when I hired my coworker Joe, I was like, "Joe, would you would you maybe be open to doing this? Would you be open to enhancing some of these videos that I make to make them look a little nicer, serve people a little bit better with you know captions at the bottom showing them what game I'm talking about right now, that sort of thing?" And Joe does that, so for it, I'm able to do part of my job that I think I'm pretty good at and that I enjoy, and Joe does the the part of it that makes it even better for people. He enhances it, um, but I also I, I carve every a, a few hours every day for game design. I carve a few hours every day for game development and then a lot of my job is uh uh, serving serving people like the 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 many different emails that come through my inbox and i enjoy that um Mm -hmm. and yeah yeah
0: yeah that that there's a so there's a couple things you know i heard that right there's the there's the things that you enjoy doing right that's key Mm -hmm. right this uh that like you know things that give you energy rather than sap energy away from you um, there's the things that you're best at doing right things yeah. that you can add the most value with right where where are you uniquely positioned to do it um and and then you know there's things that that really are the most critical things, right? What's the right. most important that has to get done. And ideally you're spending most of your time in the center of that Venn diagram. Yeah. Uh, obviously sometimes it's not, sometimes you've got to do critical things that you hate or that you're not good uh, at. Sometimes you've got to be able to do, you know, do, do the things uh, that, uh, that, that, you know, the things you like are, 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 are okay to do when they're not that important. It's, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting balance. Um, and then I think that, uh, when you're, you're trying to, decide as things shift, how do you prioritize? You mentioned another thing that is interesting, which is the sort of inbound versus versus outbound, mm-hmm. right? There's a, when I I find that as I've, my career has progressed, I have a lot more inbound than I used to. Yeah. A lot more people sending me emails, a lot more people making requests, a lot more other things that are trying to vie for my attention and that I have to fight to preserve the the protected time where yeah. I'm doing my deep work, where I'm I'm dictating my own uh, work and time, uh, and that's it's a constant battle for me. I don't know if you you've experienced that or how you deal with it.
2: Oh, absolutely, um, yeah. But time is by far my most precious resource. Uh, it, it, two things that I've kind of found that that help me a little bit is, is one. If I'm going to have a conversation with someone, um, whether it's answering a question about one of our games, a rules question, or if, or if it's going to be a conversation like we're having now, uh, I, I want it to be a public conversation. I, I want it to add value to other people. Like I love, you know, you and I could have had this conversation on the phone. I would have gotten a lot of value out of it, but only you and I would have gotten that value. Uh, whereas you're going to put this out there for ho- hopefully other people to l- listen to and get value out of it as well. And so I figure if I'm going to spend my time on something like that, I, I, my hope is that other people get value out of it. And the same thing happens with a rules question. Someone can email me a rules question and I can answer that question. And I do. But if they ask that rules question in the Wingspan Facebook group or in the Tapstry page on BoardGameGeek or on the Scythe page or on our website, then other people who might have that same question can benefit from it as well. So I'm, I'm often funneling people into public forums. If they're comfortable with that socially, um, where we can treat them well and answer them publicly for other people to to hear those answers, that's part of it. The other part of it is also, uh, I I really try to carve out two hours at the end of every day, usually between eight and ten at night, just for design time. Uh, and I I try it, for a while. I found myself like getting on my computer at eight o'clock and still going to my email and try to empty my inbox and and, and do those sorts of things. And eventually, it was about around a year ago, really, that I gave myself permission to let those things wait until the morning. And everything is fine when I do that. It, it's fine for mm-hmm. 99% of those emails to wait 12 hours until the morning. And protecting that creative time that, I, that gives me so much energy by the, at the end of the day to do that has been really fulfilling for me to do that.
0: That's that's great. And also a message I needed to hear again at this time. So (laughs) so thank you for that. Uh it's it's definitely been uh I I felt myself on the other side of the equation for for the last several weeks. Yeah. Um, Um and the uh, are you an are you an inbox zero kind of guy how do you how do you process uh just just education's email and I am, yeah. treat that sort of stuff i am inbox zero that's why
2: it can be so hard to not reply to that email at the end of the day to not have inbox zero yeah
0: yep no that's where i am too i i can't I don't feel comfortable if I have more than more than like a day or two my things sit in my inbox I start to get jittery yeah. uh, but yeah. it, it requires some good processing tools and and rules for how you move move through stuff so um i I, I don't want to spend too much time on this because I imagine it's not as exciting to our audience but I will tell you if any of you reach a level of success that you're many of you are aspiring to this this, this will become really important <laughs> uh, uh, and it's yeah important regardless of your business industry these days that's uh you know how do you process incoming information sort it in a way that's useful and actionable and balance that against the the deep work that you care about and uh want to generate uh is is a is always a critical skill I'm, I'm constantly working to refine yeah same here okay let's get back to one more uh topic i want to make sure to cover uh yeah. and then uh we'll if it, you know see whatever we can cover in the last little bit of time i knew we were gonna <laughs> i knew we were gonna run uh, run up to time here so <laughs> um you know, you're very thoughtful about the way that you run your business, and and as you mentioned, you create content and you you'll put your thought, your thinking out there in the open, which I very much appreciate. Um, one of the things that I thought was interesting was your uh, your champion, your StoneMeyer Champion program. Yeah, uh, I don't think I've seen anything quite like it anywhere else. Um, but I'd love to hear some details about that and how that's been going for you.
2: Yeah, this is a program that we started either four or five years ago. Um, and it's evolved over time, but the basic idea of it is I wanted to create a loyalty program. I I wanted to give people a reason to, uh, if they were going to buy a Stillmeyer product, that the first place that they might look for that product is our web store. And over time, even that philosophy has changed a little bit. Really, I want people to buy the product in the the way that's right for them. Um, Hopefully many of those are their local game store, but I also want some of them to be directly from our web store. And so what we've landed on at this point in time is that champions, people who sign up for a champion membership, they pay $15 a year. And their main concrete benefit is that they get 20, 20% off every order from our web store. Um, they also get like a month a special monthly newsletter. And it's a way for them to support the content that, that I create. Because none of the content that I create, the the videos, the blog posts, none of it is has ads on it. Um, None of it is gated in in any way. It's just, it's out there for people to consume. And I did at at the time when I was thinking about this, there there were an increasing number of people, and I really appreciate them asking, saying, can can you start a Patreon or something? Can you start some way for me to uh, uh, express appreciation for the content you create? Which I I really appreciate that. And so I thought, okay, I'll create this champion program as a way for some of those people to do that. And the champion program has grown. I think currently we have, we're actually getting close to 14,000 people who are in the champion program. Wow. And many of them, um, many of them are just like I, I announced started uh, my new game Expeditions a couple of weeks ago. Many of them may have just signed up to get twenty percent off on that one game because that might be more than the fifteen dollars that they're paying. But then their foot is in the door and maybe they'll check out something else later in the year, or maybe they'll stay in touch with Stoner Games more than they would have. So I, I think even that one purchase can be worth it. Uh but yeah, it's it's a little like a like a mini Amazon Prime just for just for Stoner Games.
0: Yeah. So there's an interesting, um, yeah, so t- this is this is why I wanted to open the door to kind of this idea of loyalty programs, yeah. ambassador programs. Like I find, I continue, to, it's just so hard to get through the noise nowadays, uh-huh. right? It's so much content out there. So many games being created. There's so much happening. Like ways that you can empower your most invested players mm-hmm. to both have a direct relationship with you, and, you know, ideally buy directly from you, at least some of the time, but that's the secondary goal mm-hmm. and to be able to empower them also to spread the word, spread the gospel, you know, yeah. um, it's something I think about a lot. And especially with games like Soul Forge Fusion, where there's, you know, the sort of repeat purchase model, there's tons of content coming, there's events, there's a, you need to get people to serve as your ambassadors in a powerful way or else, you know, there's just not sustainable, right? The, the, the value. gamers love talking about the games that they love. Uh-huh. Uh, you want to make it as easy for them as possible, ideally with some rewards along the way. Um, do you have any other programs like that or experience or thoughts when it comes to sort of not just the, the subscriber level, but the mm-hmm. kind of alpha enthusiast level? Or how do you think about those kinds of things?
2: Yeah, we have a separate ambassador program which uh, which just doesn't cost anything because they're offering just as much value to us as, as hopefully we are to them. But there are people who are really, really excited about what we're making at Stonemire Games. I think there's around 500 of them right now. For a while, there were actually a lot more. And I decided, I kind of, it's a little bit, a bit of a weird turning point in it, but I realized that a certain number of our ambassadors really hadn't bought into what we were actually trying to make. We were trying to make accessible Eco-friendly games that uh, that were inclusive, and I kind of realized that some of the ambassadors weren't really buying into that concept. And so uh, there's now a, kind of an application to become an ambassador, but uh, but it's pretty easy to get in. Um, and uh, so that there are often are ev- evangelists, e- e- they're evan- evangelists, Oh, what's the word? I'm stumbling over evangelical. Evangelical. Ev- yeah. Evangelists. Evangelists. Yes. They're <laughs> evangelists <laughs> for our games. Um, And we also have a discord that we set up, which is probably the most recent thing uh, set that up a a few months ago for people who want to just have that one specific platform to talk about our games. And we have the Facebook groups, too. If someone's really passionate about just one of our games, they can go into the the Facebook groups, which I love the communities that are built there as well. Have you used Facebook groups for specific games or discord?
0: Yes, both. Yeah, uh, both. So we have a Discord first, uh, which anybody can access by just going to stoneblade.com, which has all of our games in it. And anybody there, it's actually my favorite of the social channels right now because it's very, just very chat focused. It's mm-hmm. very easy to reply directly to people. So I, it's the one that my team and I are most engaged in. Uh, we've been using. So we've been using that for uh, at least a couple years since I think since COVID actually since we started the um, that we had to run our Ascension Tactics campaign with no physical presence. So we figured out discord became our kind of water cooler. Uh, and now we run our whole company out of discord as well. So we oh, have nice. our kind of back, we have our back of the office, uh, chat room, which is locked. Uh-huh. And then the main <laughs> chat at the front of the store where everybody can show up and hang out. So it's actually, uh-huh. it, it's really, it's really cool. Um, nice. and then, yeah, Facebook groups we've used since, you know, since they existed pretty much. So we have them for each of the brands. Um, nice. so, yeah, they're all they're all very valuable. And it's it's that balance of like, you know, you want to go where your where your audience is. Mm-hmm. Um, and but you also want to balance how many channels you're trying to support and how much time, you know, we have to have a dedicated person to do that. Uh, in addition to the sort of the thing I like about discord, at least for our usage is it's it's default, like I'm looking there anyway, every day. So it's easy yeah. for me to jump in and reply and say stuff. So it's 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 nice. Um, it's also, we use it for my, I think like a game designer course, uh, which we're going to be launching again pretty soon, uh, actually pretty, pretty damn soon after this airs, probably, um, where everybody, you know, the, all the students are in there and can share their games and connect and play. And it's just, a it creates a, a, much more, I don't know, just kind of a, like a, like a cool casual hangout spot than, than mm-hmm. the, the other social platforms do for me anyway. That's great. Um, so, so I, I want to, I want to keep the thread on, um, so building community this yeah. is a, b- a key part of it right so it's all it's all it's all connected here because i think great games is 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 an, is a critical piece of the puzzle right if you don't have great games then you're you're dead in the water to begin with but it's not the only piece and and may not even be the most important piece it's a, that that building a great community is 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 at least as important uh, over the long term, Um, and so you know these social digital communities supporting stores for their communities, and then you know having these ambassadors, these these leaders, these you know alphas, whatever you want to call them, to to help build communities uh, in places you can't reach necessarily. Um, So you said you 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 have a a, 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 and selecting those ambassadors is is not necessarily an easy process because you want to open the, you know, be inclusive, but you also want people that are going to represent you and your game and your philosophy as well. Right. So you said you had a short survey. Uh, what is that? What, if you don't mind sharing, like what's on that survey, like what, what are filters are you using there? Like, how do you, how do you decide, you know, who, who gets in the door, who doesn't in this program?
2: Yeah. So it's one of these, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll share some of the questions with you. Some of them might be contentious at this point, but let's see. Um, So the first question is, do you believe that Stillmeyer should offer exclusive, tangible content for our games that is only available for a limited time to specific groups? Um, And this is kind of our way. So we have kind of fully embraced the idea that we want to be inclusive with our content. And if we are going to have promo content, and we do have promo content, that it isn't exclusive to a single moment in time or a single single group. Uh, And this was actually one of the biggest things that I found, that there are more and more ambassadors who seem to really want exclusive stuff, and it it just is not the philosophy of Stillmeyer Games. It, that isn't the type of content we create. How do you sure. feel about those exclusive? I,
0: I, oh yeah, oh, yeah well, you opened up a can of worms. There, but I, <laughs> I, I, I'll I'll give you my short answer, which is okay. like I I hate it. When games do gameplay exclusive yeah. content yeah. that's like that. Right. Like I don't get to play with this cool toy because I didn't happen to be at the right place at the right time. Exactly. That really bothers me. Yeah. Um, but I don't it does not um alternate art or variants or just okay. purely cosmetics, I do not feel that way. I think that's yeah. actually a great way to reward people yeah. um for whom are particularly loyal or to show that they, hey, I went to this event, or you know, I think I think cosmetics are, are fair game, but but gameplay exclusives are distasteful to me personally.
2: Okay, yeah, we're definitely on the same page there. Um, then I have a few questions about questions about. Let's see. Uh, yeah, this, so a lot of our ambassadors are kind of moderators, and so I say this is a kind of an easy one th- for them to answer. But uh, on social media, you see someone post the following: "Side sucks. Don't believe the hype." How do you respond? And I give a few options for how they could respond to that. Um, some are, are nicer <laughs> than others. There's one red herring answer, things like that. Because I want to make sure that. The idea of the ambassadors is that they they are welcoming people in, even if someone comes in with a, with a little, little heat like that, uh, sure. I want them to feel welcome too. So there are questions like that, so basically testing how welcoming they're going to be to people who um, come from different walks of life.
0: Yeah, that's great. I think um, yeah, making sure that people are going to be you know be kind, be good yeah. at what they're yeah. you know have some semblance of understanding of what they're trying to do and that their heart's in the right place uh is 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 some of the most important parts right building that welcoming positive community uh is is so critical again it's why i i know from just consuming enough of your content it's 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 a a big part of why you do what you do it's why i do what i do and if you you know bring someone on board that doesn't have that philosophy it's it's it can be very corrosive very quickly um whether that be ambassadors or staff or anything like that oh yeah it's it's every level and i think if you if you if like we've done,
2: I think we've done a pretty good job at fostering this welcoming community, especially this this welcoming group of ambassadors that welcome other people. And it takes a lot of pressure off off me to do that, and to pressure off my coworker Joe who works in customer service because the ambassadors are out there answering questions often faster than we can. And if they're doing so in a way that is kind and welcoming, they're they're doing I, I guess they're doing part of my job for me in in a really great way.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and so I think uh I think that's a it's it's a great and powerful tool. It's one of the things that you I feel grateful for um to be able to you know have enough of an audience that there are people that want to do this, right? It's mm-hmm. a, it's a great threshold to be at. Um do you find that these transition much between different games, right? Like how many of these people are you know, Stonemeyer fans and playing everything that you play or a bunch of different games, how many are like, no, no, I'm here for Scythe. Like, that's my jam. <laughs> and, you know, because well, we have we have that too, right? We have Ascension players. We have Soulforge yeah. players. We have some crossovers. But typically there's there's somewhere they're leaning and that's the universe they want to play in.
2: Yeah, there, there's, it's it's a little all over the place. Um, one of the questions on the survey actually is, and let's see if I, I might have actual data for you right now. Um, Ooh. Yes. Okay, so... I ask, uh, how many Stoneware Games products do you know fairly well? And let's see. Uh, the people who answer most, most is eight plus, and that's sixteen percent. And then some, which is three to eight, is around twenty five percent. Actually, no, this data it's a little skewed because it looks like I've changed the answers over time, so the pie chart is is a little skewed. So it looks like about half and half. Like some people know a lot of our games when they sign up to be an ambassador and it looks like around half only know like one or two. So maybe their, their foot is in the door through a wingspan or a scythe and, uh, and they're excited enough about that game that they want to, to learn more. And that I'm, I'm fine. I, I kind of like having a mix of the two, um, but there are yeah. only the diehards that know everything, but there are also some people that just know a few things and want to know more.
0: Yeah, no, it's great. It's great. It's great balance to have. Actually. I think that's a pretty perfect ratio to yeah. be honest. Um, all right so uh we're running short on time uh so i i you know again normally at this point i i point people to your other sources of where to find you we did that at the beginning Mm -hmm. and i do just want to reiterate i mean you're the the wealth of incredibly great knowledge that you share uh is is it rivals anything i've seen in the marketplace and so i want to thank you for it i've used it in the past uh when i've run you know different campaigns and i'm i'm always looking at at you as a thought leader in the space and so other people should should look to that as well and there's guides from the beginner all the way to the 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 experimental um so i know you've got a lot of data out there is there anything that you would want to share and a majority of our audience are, are are you know designers or aspiring designers or actually i've learned quite a few people that are you know in the industry already that are uh, that are checking in uh is there any sort of other insight you'd want to share for somebody starting out or some counterintuitive thing that you're still working through or anything you want to <laughs> share with the audience before we wrap up uh yeah, no no pressure to end strong here. Um Yeah, like I said, I started strong because I started <laughs> by saying like you 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 were one of the hardest interviews I've had to prepare for because so much of your content's already there. And I mm-hmm. didn't want to just rehash stuff you've already said. So so you've done a great job sharing a ton of value. If something comes to mind, great. If not, no worries.
2: You know, something I don't have anything amazing that's come to mind off, off the top of my head, but i I really enjoyed this conversation, and anyone listening to this, I hope they feel welcome to join the conversation on my on my YouTube channel or on the blog. Because really, that that's what it is. Like I'm I'm posting some ideas out there, and sometimes it's data, sometimes it's a strong opinion. But I I really genuinely want to hear what other people think, so that I can better serve the people who are playing our games or are curious about our games. Um, so yeah. I, I, I think that's the the best way I can say it. Like I, I'm gonna learn more, I think, from other people joining that conversation than they can learn from from some uh, moment of insight that I can share right
0: now. No, that's 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 great. And I I think that actually does serve as a pretty deep point here. You know, like mm-hmm. there is a way to um you, you know, people feel like and it's one of the reasons why I like having these kinds of conversations, people feel like they're they're ideal designers, the CEOs, the game designers are these unapproachable, you know, all knowing things. <laughs> and I'm just like, we don't know what we're doing <laughs> as well. Like we're just figuring <laughs> it out as we go. Yeah. And we love conversation. And by and teaching and writing and talking through it is yeah. how we get better. And so the feedback is is critical. In fact it's one of the key th- the keys to long-term success is you got to be able to take those feedback loops. So, so Absolutely. for those out there that want to, I mean, I reached out to you by a comment on your YouTube channel. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, even I did this. Uh, so, so you're you're responsive to it, and, and people should feel that way. And, and I hope that other people feel that way uh, with me and my content too. Uh, so it's 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 worth reiterating, right? I mean, put put that stuff out there. I had a, I actually had a thing in my book in one of the last chapters that gave people the way to contact me directly, uh-huh. like, and uh-huh. I, out of out of you know many many thousands of books sold. I think maybe t- 20 people total ever actually used it. Uh, so uh, it's a, it's a, you know, the ability to just reach out. If you have uh, questions, comments to engage, to share your thoughts, everybody in the audience, um, please do so. And then he knows maybe one of you out there will, uh, will be the next guest on, guest on this podcast. And you'll be sharing your thoughts with the, uh, with the whole world. So yeah. this has been fantastic. So thanks so much, Jamie. I, I appreciate the time and the extra bonus time. Uh, I, I'm, I would love uh, to have another conversation with you. Uh, maybe even be fun to, get together and brainstorm a project or something. I think we have a lot aligned in how we think about these things. So uh, it would be a lot of fun.
2: If you're a nomadic travels ever you to St. Louis, uh, let me know. I'm, yeah. Love to chat more.
0: Sounds good. All, All right. right. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you want to support the podcast, please rate, comment and share on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, Stitcher or whatever device you're listening on. Listener reviews and shares make a huge difference and help us grow this community and will allow me to bring more amazing guests and insights to you. I've taken the insights from these interviews along with my 20 years of experience in the game industry and compressed it all into a book with the same title as this podcast, Think Like a Game Designer. In it, I give step by step instructions on how to apply the lessons from these great designers and bring your own games to life. If you think you might be interested, you can check out the book at thinklikeagamedesigner.com or wherever fine books are sold.